We're going to read John chapter 6 from verse 16 to verse 21. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you this morning to give us a special measure of your Holy Spirit, a special measure of grace this morning to see beyond what is human, beyond um, a human standing up here in the front talking. And Lord, that we would see beyond that to see that you speak to us through your word, through the scriptures, through your son and his, his deeds. And Father, I just ask that you would help us to hear you this morning, that you would stir our hearts, give us ears, and glorify your name. So, Father, we ask that you would work because we know that nothing happens unless you are at work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Being a Christian is Just Like Walking on Water. Being a Christian is just like walking on water. Have you ever thought of it like that before? Have you ever thought of it as walking on water? Have you ever thought, my being a Christian is as crazy and as foolish sounding and as impossible as walking on water? Have you ever thought of it that way? I'd like to draw our attention to that this morning. It was at one time popular to think of Christianity as the culmination of human sagacity. That is, Christianity was a system that was not from God to man, but it was a system and a religion that originated from man. That is, Christianity is not supernatural, it's natural, wonderfully natural. The very best of human thinking about the universe and about God, perfectly distilled, so that if a person were rational, were level-headed, then they'd see the truth of the Christian religion. It's just the best of human thinking about the universe, the best of human thinking about God. There's nothing supernatural about it, just natural. In other words, Christianity is not something transcendent above human nature or incongruous with human nature. It's 
the supreme articulation of what is decidedly human. And this naturalness is the best proof that it's true. That's how people used to think. It was quite popular. Some people still think that today. Its naturalness is the best proof that it's true. And then you have a story like this one. Jesus walks on water. He's walking on water. Let's be stunned by that this morning because we have heard it so many times. We can say, ah, I've heard that before. Now, hold on a minute. He's doing something that's, that human beings don't do, can't do, right? Don't even think about doing. How many of you think about walking on water? We don't think about it because it's so utterly categorically inhuman, right? If I were to ask you, could you tell me something about human beings that is decidedly human? You know, capture it in a phrase. Tell me about human beings. I don't think any one of us would say, um, walking on water, right? (laughs) That's probably the last thing we'd think. And yet here is Jesus walking upon water. Now, for those who take as their guiding principle this idea that the Bible is just a product of human thoughts and man is the measure of all things, then what they're going to do with this story is they're going to say, this really never happened. It's just metaphorical or symbolic or an allegory. Or, well, maybe an event did happen, but the disciples misunderstood. They misinterpreted it. You know, they thought Jesus was walking on water, but it, it wasn't. I, heard an, I actually read an outlandish explanation of this miracle online. What's that? He was surfing on a wave. Actually, it was even crazier than that. So they, he, the guy said, well, maybe there was an earthquake and the sediment got into the water. And, and you know what happens when you have like cornstarch and water? And, and if you, if, it's like liquid, but if you, if you work it, you can kind of stand on it quickly. And maybe that's what happened. And Jesus just took that opportunity to <laughs> run across the waves. <laughs> See, if, if you're guiding, brothers and sisters, if your guiding principle, if, you're, if your starting point is, I think there's nothing supernatural in this world, right? I think there's, there's no supernatural issue in Christianity. It's just the product of man thinking, and it's the best product we've got. You're going to have to do that with stories like this. But we have no reason to reject this miracle except this impious and unbelieving principle that we reject as Christians. Amen? If we don't have that starting place, we have lots of reasons to believe this miracle. My point is, this incident of Jesus walking on water is not some isolated exception to the rule. What I mean by that is, this incident of Jesus walking on water, brothers and sisters, captures the essence of the whole Bible and the essence of Christianity as well. Would you agree with me? It captures the essence of it. That is, Christianity is supernatural, right? This isn't some isolated thing. It's not that if you read the whole Bible and you study Christianity, you're going to find everything about it is very natural and naturalistic, except this one isolated thing, Jesus walked on water, right? It captures it. It's supernatural, wonderfully supernatural. And we see that Christianity is from God, not from man. It is not the best of our thinking about the universe and God. It is revelation of the truth 
and the wisdom and the works of God. Not known simply by sitting in a corner and thinking about things really hard, but known by the Spirit through the means of the foolishness of preaching, the Bible says, right? These are reports. We're telling you what God has done. It's not something that humans have thought up. It's not natural. It's not just based upon human reason. You're hearing reports, aren't you? Isn't that how it begins? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the waters. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. We didn't know this by human reason, right? I mean, by human reason, you can see that there is a creator, but we don't know how God created the world. It's, it be, it's a story from beginning to end, right? It's a report. It's revelation. It's from God and not from man. And it's supernatural. In other words, Christianity is something transcendent above human nature. Not that it denies human nature or ignores human nature. It just goes beyond human nature. Man is not the measure of all things in Christianity. Amen? And I believe that the Holy Spirit teaches us that it's precisely this mark of Christianity that man isn't the measure of all things that shows that it's true. It's the only religion that ultimately bears this mark. It's the only religion that is ultimately like walking on water. And I'd like to unpack that this morning. So this morning, I'm going to talk about how being a Christian is just like walking on water. Three sections. Number one, what it is to walk on water. We'll talk about what it is to walk on water, and we'll discuss the relationship between a miracle and the laws of nature. Secondly, we'll look at the usual interpretation of this story. The usual interpretation of this story. And thirdly, lastly, we'll talk about how being a Christian is just like walking on water. So number one, what it is to walk on water. Now all the Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, as I've mentioned, But Matthew, Mark, and John are the only Gospels to immediately continue on and share with us this miracle of the walking on water. Luke, for his own purposes, omits the story of Jesus walking on water. Considering John's highly selective content and considering John's specific purpose, it might have been easy for him to pass over this story of Jesus walking on water. He could have just went directly from the feeding of the 5,000 to the bread of life discourse, but he doesn't. He includes this short little story of Jesus walking on water. But it would have been easy for him to pass it over if this story were not in keeping with his purpose, right? Because we've already seen how uh, selective he is. So as thoughtful readers of the Gospel of John, we should say, if John's super selective about what he includes and he omits a whole lot of stuff, and he's got a purpose, and his purpose is to reveal who Jesus is, and not only to reveal who Jesus is, but to get to the theological crux of what Jesus is all about, right? What's the point here? What is the essence of this man? That's his purpose. So as thoughtful readers, we shouldn't think, oh, this is just some story about Jesus walking on water and It's got to have something to do with his ultimate purpose, right? So we need to read carefully and think about this. Because I submit that this story underscores what it's all about. I mean, 
Have you ever just thought this story is strange and you don't even know why it's there? I want to argue this morning that this story underscores what Christianity is all about. It's important for us to get this. He walked on water. What's the significance? Now we're confronted in this chapter 6 with the second unusually spectacular miracle that Jesus performs. The first being the feeding of the 5,000, and now the second being Jesus walks upon water. These are majestic displays of omnipotence and control over nature. In the first miracle, Jesus overrules the laws of thermodynamics by making bread virtually out of nothing, right? He feeds probably over 10,000 people with just a handful of food. He overrules the laws of thermodynamics and Other laws, I'm sure. I'm no scientist. Now, this second miracle, following immediately after the first, he overrules the laws of fluid mechanics. Now, Brad's an expert in fluid mechanics. That's his specialty. I'm I'm no expert whatsoever, but I know that water works a certain way, right? (laughs) And Jesus overrules the laws of fluid mechanics by walking on water. Now, I'm using the word overrule very carefully. When I was 18 and 19, I attended the University of New Brunswick. And I took a class at the University of New Brunswick by a professor named Robert Larmer, and I believe he still teaches there, and now he's the head of the philosophy department at the University of New Brunswick. I'm not sure if he was then. He taught a course on miracles. Little did I know... He's a Christian. I knew he was a Christian. Little did I know, he's he's something of an expert, a leading expert on the subject of miracles. And I do remember from his class that he continually stressed that miracles are not violations of the laws of nature. He continually stressed that. That was his main point, really. Miracles are not violations of the laws of nature. What is a violation? A violation is when you fail to respect what ought to be respected right? A violation is when you fail to comply with what ought to be complied with. The the laws of nature are the laws of the land. You don't violate them, right? And if you don't abide by them, then you're a violator. You're doing something that's wrong. And those who define miracles as violations of the laws of nature rule out the possibility of miracles. They say, the law of the land is the law of nature. You just you can't violate those laws. Larmer's point was that above the laws of nature is God. And by God intervening and, and you know, doing things that are strange and out of the ordinary and going beyond the laws of nature, he's not violating the laws of nature because they aren't the final law of the land. They aren't the final rules, Right? God's authority overrules their authority, and God is not disrespecting the laws of nature when he does miracles because they aren't the ultimate authority in the land. The laws of nature bow to God. God does not have to bow to the laws of nature. It's kind of like, you know, if the police are carrying out an investigation of a crime or something like that, and then the FBI shows up, right? And the FBI has authority over the police to do things that... The police can't do, and they can step in and say, no, I overrule your jurisdiction here because I have that. That doesn't mean the FBI is necessarily disrespecting the police, right? Maybe sometimes they disrespect them, but
but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. They just have a higher authority. And I don't know about you, but I don't get any sense in the Bible of mocking or disrespecting of the laws of nature when God does a miracle. God created the world, created all those laws, and he proclaimed them to be good. And God even works together with the laws of nature when God performs a miracle, for example, creating bread out of absolutely nothing. That bread enters the world and proceeds to work by the laws of nature, right? As C.S. Lewis said, miraculous wine will intoxicate. (laughs) Miraculous conception will lead to pregnancy. Inspired books will suffer all the ordinary processes of textual corruption. Miraculous bread will be digested. So God works with the laws of nature, but he's not bound by them because he's over them, and he's not violating them by performing miracles. And so Jesus, by walking on the water, overrules fluid mechanics, laws of fluid mechanics, but he doesn't violate them, he transcends them. We actually have a cluster of three incredible miracles in this story. I don't know if you noticed. So number one, obviously, he walks upon water. That's mind-blowing. That's amazing. Number two, and we don't see this in the Gospel of John, but when Jesus gets into the boat, the storm stops, right? Turn with me to Mark, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Verse 47. Mark 6, 47. This is Mark's telling of the story. He says, When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, Jesus. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. You imagine. You don't expect to see anybody walking on the water. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, And they were utterly astonished. So here's the second incredible miracle in this story. Not only does he walk on water, he gets into the boat and the storm's gone. And then turn back to John chapter 6, we see the third incredible miracle that takes place in this cluster of miracles. Verse 21, So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going just transferred, right? That's like something out of The Matrix, if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, you know? That's just like total manipulation of nature, right? But he's not violating nature. He's revealing his authority over it. And this miracle reveals Jesus as the divine word who became flesh, who was in the beginning with God, and who is God. For God is the only one who has control over nature like this. I'd like to read Job from Job chapter 9, and listen carefully to what Job says about God. It is God who removes the mountains, who shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. 
And here Jesus is doing that. In my second section this morning, what is the usual interpretation of the story? Now I'd like to say up front that the usual interpretation of this miracle and this story, which you'll find in commentaries and which you'll find in most sermons, at least most sermons that I've heard on this, on this miracle, uh, the usual interpretation is thoroughly biblical and undoubtedly true and a perfectly valid application of this story. And I, and I want to make that clear. It's true, it's biblical, and it's a perfectly valid application of this story. Here's what it is as follows. The disciples just witnessed an incredible miracle, an incredible uh, manifestation of God in multiplying the bread, and they just witnessed Jesus having an upsurge of popularity. He was already popular, but now they think, wow, he's, let's make him king. He's clearly the Messiah. So the disciples are at a very high point. They're, they just saw one of the most incredible things, and their master is getting popular, and this is good. But Jesus ushers them into a boat, sends them on the lake, and goes off to pray. While they're on the, on the lake, darkness comes, a storm comes, and they're struggling. So they go from this really high point to now they're on the lake struggling in the dark. And Jesus is watching them from the mountain. He sees what's going on, and he lets it happen for a little while. And then he comes on the sea to rescue them. They're, of course, afraid, but when they realize it's him, they welcome him in and are at rest. Three significant lessons are drawn from this story, and I'd like us to hear these lessons afresh this morning. They're very important. Number one, here's the lesson that's usually drawn from this story. And you've probably heard this before, and it's true. Number one, difficulties, struggles, and trials are not irregular features of the Christian life. True? Have you heard that from this story before, right? Kind of getting the sense of what the usual interpretation is? I bet there's not one person here who has not or is not going through difficulty and trial. True? Anyone can say, no trials for me. (laughs) Never have, not yet. (laughs) Don't plan on it. Now, we're tempted to think that if God is with us, there will be no difficulties, right? Just try to imagine the disciples that day. They just saw one of the most incredible miracles by all biblical standards. They're on a real high, and they're probably not expecting, in a very short time, I'm going to be in a really hard place, right? And it wasn't on account of their sin or their stupidity that they got into this jam Because Jesus told them to go onto the water, right? Jesus says, get on the boat, go across the the lake. And they do, in obedience to him. And they find themselves in difficulty. So Jesus sent them. It's not their fault. It's Jesus's. And he's probably, undoubtedly, praying for them while he's praying on the mountain, right? Interceding for them. God, please help my disciples understand who I am. Matthew Henry comments that the perils and afflictions of this present time may very well consist with our interest in Christ and his intercession. 
So we ought to be encouraged by this story, brothers and sisters. It's not strange if you're going through struggles, if you feel alone, if you feel like you're in a dark place or a storm. It's not that God has abandoned you. God is in control. And that doesn't even mean that Jesus isn't praying for you, right? Interceding for you. So that's encouraging. Charles Spurgeon says, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. The second significant lesson that's drawn from this story is that the trials God allows in our life are all for our good. If Jesus, who loved them, sent them upon the sea, watched them from the mountain, and is even praying for them, it's obviously for their good that the disciples are left to struggle on that lake, to train them and to reveal more of himself. This is what the Bible repeatedly teaches us, actually. The Bible doesn't teach us that if you belong to God in this life, that everything will be easy. But the, the Bible repeatedly teaches us that God trains us to show us more of himself by letting us go through trials. And if it weren't for our trials, we would never fully know our wretchedness, and we would never fully know the blessedness of who God is and how precious he is. Amen? But if we never struggled at all, we might, we might think, I'm, I'm really strong, you know? I'm really wise. I'm not wretched at all. But struggles just grind you down or take you to a low place. And you realize, boy, if God doesn't come through for me, I'm, I'm lost. You know, I'm toast. And he is so precious to me right now. So the Bible teaches us this. Alexander McLaren, a 19th century Scottish preacher, says this about our trials. A sweeter, a more gracious sense of his nearness to us is ever granted to us in the time of our darkness and our grief than is possible to us in the sunny hours of joy. It is always the stormy sea that Christ comes across to draw near to us. And they who have never experienced the tempest have yet to learn the inmost sweetness of his presence. Sorrow brings him near to us. The third significant lesson we learn from the usual interpretation of this story is that it is the presence of Jesus that banishes our fear. Have you heard this before, right? The presence of Jesus banishes our fear. The disciples are in extremity. They can't get out of this situation. They're failing. They're even afraid. But when they realize that it's Jesus who has come to them, they're glad. Try to imagine how glad you'd, you would be. Try to imagine the relief when they realize, the one who's walking on water is Jesus. And they gladly receive him into the boat, it says, and they have peace, and then the storm goes away. And so the lesson is often drawn that Jesus is the one who banishes our fears. And we may truly say, and I think all Christians would agree, that to know who Jesus is and to know that he is present is to not be afraid in any circumstance. Amen? Why do we get afraid? And I can speak from personal experience. I know why I get afraid. You ever get afraid? I get afraid. I do. And it's always because I forget who Jesus is, or if I know who he is, I forget that he's present, right? 
I forget that he's real. I forget that he's there caring for me. McLaren goes on to say, his coming is the banishment of danger. I like how he says this. And the exorcism of dread. I really like how he says that. When we forget who he is, it's like we're possessed with fear. And when he comes, he exercises that dread. I just think that's so wonderful and true. And Calvin reminds us, seeing that a pilot steers the ship in which we sail, who will never allow us to perish, even in the midst of shipwrecks, there is no reason why our minds should be overwhelmed with fear and overcome with weariness. When you see that he's there, he's in control, and he's present. So, friends, this is the usual interpretation of this passage, and all of these points are completely true. They're valid applications of this passage, and we would be totally wrong to exclude them in our handling of this passage. I think that we can take this away from the passage. And I'm sure you've all heard it. However, I believe that to only draw these lessons from this story is to miss the essential symbolism of the story. It's to miss the vital place this story has between the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the bread of life discourse. And it's to miss completely how and why John includes this story into his gospel. Remember, he's highly selective. And he's got a clear purpose. And just drawing those personal and pastoral applications from the story, those are true, and I want us all to be encouraged by them, but it's missing the point of the story. There's a deeper lesson here for us to learn. Do you think I'm crazy, or do you think that's probably true? Right? So I'd like to move to my final point this morning, and that is how being a Christian is just like walking on water. Now, I believe that the ultimate point of this story is not Christ rescuing his people when they're in trials. But the ultimate point of the story, I believe, is Christ's supernatural transcendence over that which is human. I believe that's the point of the story, which takes us back to the original point that we were making in this, in this sermon that I was making. And that is when we're dealing with Christ and we're, when we're dealing with Christianity, we're dealing with something that's crazy, that sounds foolish, and that is humanly impossible when we're dealing with him. Remember, this is not an isolated incident in the Bible. This is not a one-of-a-kind exception to a generally naturalistic Bible. This captures the essence of the whole Bible. The essence of the whole Bible is, wow, God can do what we can't do, right? The essence of the whole Bible is realizing humans can't, God can. The essence of the whole Bible is super nature. It points to what God is able to do even though man is not able to do it. And I believe that this story underscores that reality. And I believe that this story points to the deeper truth of our salvation, that our salvation is supernatural. It is the supernatural law-overriding nature of salvation that this story is highlighting and pointing to. To walk on water 
is to do that which is humanly impossible. True? Nobody does it. Nobody can. Nobody even thinks to do it. And the gospel tells us that what is involved in the gospel is that which is humanly impossible. I'd like to remind you of something Jesus said once. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he was talking about the gospel. He was talking about salvation, wasn't he? Because do you remember the context of that story? The context of that story was a young rich man who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So that's the context, inheriting eternal life. Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. You can't. What does Moses tell you to do? Keep the commandments, right? Oh, I do those. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't do it. Go sell everything that you have and give to the poor. You've got a big glaring sin that you're overlooking. And he went away sad because he said, you know, you lack one thing. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven because you haven't done all that the law of Moses required. And when he went away sad, that was when the disciples were amazed, baffled. This is, a, this is beyond human. This man, I mean, they probably thought this man, maybe they even heard about him or knew about him. You know, when you know rich people, you know they're popular. And if he really did keep all of them from his youth up, he probably was a respected guy, right? So they probably all thought, surely this man it will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus closes the door on him and says, no. Jesus closes the door on the Pharisees, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Everyone would have been shocked by that. They won't enter? I'm trying to be like those guys, right? <laughs> They're the ones who are giving me hope that I can make it. You're taking away my hope. The gospel involves that which is humanly impossible, like walking on water, and that is the gospel requires or proclaims or involves human beings being righteous before God. Now, nobody is righteous, right, by their own works. Nobody can be righteous, the Bible tells us, and nobody even thinks they can be righteous. No, that's not true, right? (laughs) Seems like a lot of people think they can be righteous. A lot of people think they can do it, and in fact, they go and try to do it. And the derangement here is that they lower the standards and they think it's possible because man is the measure of all things, right? Righteousness isn't perfection. That belongs to God. God doesn't expect us have a righteousness like that, right? That's crazy. That's impossible. We're human. We're only human. Have you heard that? We're only human. And God knows we're only human, and so he only gives us only human requirements. Man is the measure of all things. And so they lower the standard from what God through Moses proclaimed it to be, from what God through the prophets proclaimed it to be, from what God through Jesus proclaimed it to be, from what God through the apostles proclaimed it to be, from what God through the Christian church, the history, the true Christians have proclaimed it to be. They lower the standard. That's crazy. That's foolish. That's impossible. God doesn't require that. It's got to be a human standard. But brothers and sisters, the law of God requires the righteousness of God. And what, isn't that what, the, the, what Paul says that the gospel reveals? 
even in Romans 1, verse 17, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. When we're dealing with Christianity, when we're dealing with salvation and eternal life according to the Bible, we're dealing with the righteousness of God and not the righteousness of man. When Isaiah saw the Lord and he saw his holiness and his purity, he said, we're all toast because God is righteous and he is pure and he doesn't require, he doesn't accept anything but total purity. I'm unclean. My people are unclean. We're doomed. The law of God requires perfection, perfection of love. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and all of your strength. Is there any one of us who does that? All now, right? That means there's not one thing you lack. And to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, is there anyone here that in the last two days has loved their neighbor as they loved themselves? That you've, you've actually cared about another person as much as you care about yourself? Not me. I miserably failed that one yesterday. And if a person will accept the revelation of God, that this is the truth of God and his standard, and if they see that the law requires perfection, then they will see that keeping the law and being righteous is as impossible as walking on water, right? I'm going to sink. <laughs> if, I, if, you want, if I need to walk on water, I'm going to sink. If I need to be righteous in and of myself, I'm not going to do it. And so you won't think of trying to do it. You'll despair of doing it. It's not going to work. And that's the entire point, isn't it? That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of Christianity. It's about recognizing you can't. It's about recognizing your sinfulness, recognizing your wretchedness, recognizing God's righteousness and your unrighteousness in the light of it and turning away from nature and turning away from man, turning away from what you can do and turning to the supernatural power of Jesus who will bestow upon you that which you could never humanly have done and what you could never be in and of yourself, and by your own works. That's the message of Christianity, isn't it? Not by works. No one will be righteous. No flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, without the law, without the works of the law, doing the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all, from God to man, upon all who believe. Amen? What a gospel. What a good news. And there's hope there, not in yourself, but in God, because Jesus bestows perfect righteousness. And here's the thing. He bestows it not by violating the holy law of God, right? See, there's a law. And it's inflexible. And God doesn't disrespect the laws of nature, nor does he disrespect his own law. 
we broke the law of God and we deserve death, the Bible tells us. God cannot violate his own law. He cannot violate his own word. He cannot violate his own justice. And so Jesus doesn't come along and say, I'll just punch the law in the face. I'll just, you know, come sweep down like the FBI and just kick the police out. Not recognize their jurisdiction, not recognize their authority whatsoever. Just disrespect them and just muscle you into the kingdom. We'll just forget about justice. We'll just forget about your sins. We'll just cast them behind my back. It doesn't matter anymore. That's not possible. If the law was all there was, if there was no higher authority than the law, then we'd all be doomed because we've broken it and God cannot violate it. There would be no hope. But the gospel, the good news of Christianity, is that there's more to God than law. God displaying his transcendent love. Amen? Love that's beyond the measure of human love, right? You know, if God loved like you love, you'd never be saved. Right? How many of you think you're a nice, loving person? How many of you think, I wish people were more loving like me. (laughs) If God loved like you loved, you'd never be saved. You'd be damned. Because you don't love very much. You certainly don't love in the way that would be needed to save. But God displaying his transcendent love, his transcendent wisdom, and his transcendent power sent Christ into the world, and this is what we're reading about in the Gospels, and he came into the world to die. That's the purpose of his coming, to die. To die for our sins, to die for my sins, and to die for your sins. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Christ, who knew no sin, he was the righteousness of God, amen? He knew no sin, had no spot, no blemish, total blamelessness, total purity. And God did the unimaginable thing. This is something that transcends just simple justice, right? He did the unimaginable thing. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin for you and for me. And all of God's justice and wrath and the punishment that should belong to us according to his law was placed upon Jesus. When our sins were placed upon him, the punishment of our peace was placed upon him too. And Jesus died for us. I'm going to repeat this again. I I say it every week, but we need to hear it, don't we? Jesus died for you. 2,000 years ago in history, God sent his perfect son to die for your sins. And he did that because God is inflexibly just. And he did that so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then Jesus rose from the dead, which we're going to celebrate especially next week. Romans chapter 6, verse 9 says that knowing that Christ, having raised from the dead, dies no more. How many more times will Jesus die? Never. How many more times will he need to die? Never again. Death no more has dominion over him. Why? Because the death that he died, he died for sins 
once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives unto God. And now Jesus stands above the law by virtue of his death, not by violating the law, but because he entered our sinful humanity and he paid the penalty that we deserve. And, he, and by his resurrection, he overrules now the authority of the law by his supreme authority as the risen Lord. He is risen. And who is he? He's the one who was crucified for our sins, satisfying the demands of the law. And now he is alive and he exists above the law. He can now step in and overrule and say, yes, I know the law has jurisdiction here to punish, but I have a higher jurisdiction because I've paid the penalty. And he stands there and calls us to himself and calls us to that very same resurrected glory. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't just stand above the law and say, I can forgive you and give you another sec- a second chance at this law thing or I'll help you with this law thing. He says, come to me, believe in me, partake of what I've done for you, and you too will stand in new resurrected life above the law. Isn't that what Romans teaches us, right? We have died with Christ, and we are dead to the law, and we're dead to sin, and we're alive unto God, and sin no no more has dominion over us. Death no more has dominion over us. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never die, right? Because through faith, we enter that transcendent realm of the power of God and the righteousness of God. Carl F.H. Henry is one of the few commentators that picked up on this in this story. And he says, if the multiplication of the loaves speaks of the incarnate bread come down from above, The miracle on the sea displays resurrection life, human nature lifted to to new spiritual capacities. There's a man doing something what man can't do, and he's doing it by the power of God. And that's just Jesus simply overruling the laws of nature. But the lesson here is that Jesus Christ has also overruled the law of God not violating it, not disrespecting it, but transcending it by his death and his resurrection. And he calls us to himself to transcend as well. Am I nuts? Or is that what the Bible teaches? Putting faith in Jesus Christ for your righteousness is like stepping out of the boat. It's crazy and it sounds foolish and it's humanly impossible. You're saying, I as a Christian am righteous. You're making a crazy statement. Now, if you lower the standard, then you're not making a crazy statement. I'm righteous because, you know, I'm a pretty decent fellow. And, of course, that's, that's human. There's nothing crazy about that. Everyone would probably agree with you. Christianity is talking about something more. What about this? As a Christian, you're proclaiming, I am the righteousness of God. <laughs> right? I am blameless in the sight of God. Sin has no dominion over me. Death has no dominion over me. I am perfect and complete in Christ. Totally righteous, spotless, blameless, pure in God's sight. You're crazy! (laughs) To put your faith in Jesus Christ for righteousness is to transcend a law that has more binding power than the laws of fluid mechanics. God's justice 
You're saying, yes, I recognize the justice of God and I'm not guilty. Because Jesus has satisfied it in my place and so I walk on this water. This is the faith required to be a Christian. It's of the same nature as walking on water. So when you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, and many people do, you have to think about it. Can I detect in this person a crazy element, right? (laughs) Can I detect in this person a foolish-sounding idea, right? Can I detect in this person something that's humanly impossible, something that transcends human wisdom and human works and human ideas, right? And I listen I'm a Christian. Tell me what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means imitating Jesus as the best that I can. I don't need to be perfect. I just need to try. If I do my best, I'm going to be all right. Yeah, that's what basically every religion says. That's human. There's nothing crazy about that, except that you're ignoring God. That's crazy. But when I meet someone, they say, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that even though I'm an evil guy, sinful, really nasty, you know, and God, I violated his law, and I deserve death, and God's law is inflexibly just, even though I have hope of going to heaven, even though I'm not afraid, even though I'm trusting in Jesus, and I am totally blameless in God's sight through him, not through anything I've done. Man, I sinned really bad just a moment ago. I'm still blameless in the sight of God. You're nuts. That's what the world will say, but as Christians will say, Glad to meet you here on the waves, brother, right? (laughs) In this storm, friends, there's only two options. You either sink or you walk. That's it. It's not sink or swim. You either sink or you walk. That's it. This morning, I want to encourage you and all of us not to be afraid. Not to be afraid, not only in the midst of your trials, okay? I want to encourage you this morning not only to not be afraid in the midst of your trials, but in the midst of your sinfulness. And that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But in the midst of your sinfulness, I want to encourage you not to be afraid. Now, you have every reason to be afraid if it weren't for Jesus, right? Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you deserve death. Yes, God's justice is inflexible, but Jesus. And that's why I'm not afraid. And I'd like to encourage you to hear his voice, not just in the midst of your trials, and please hear his voice in that midst as well, but in the midst of your sinfulness, hear his voice. It is I, don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because it's me. Because when you know who Jesus is, when you really understand him, and you know what he's done for you, and you know he is the crucified, risen Lord, and not only do you know who he is, but you realize he's present, that through believing in him, he is yours, and you are his then you cannot be afraid in the midst of your sinfulness. 
May we learn the deep lesson of this miracle. And may we tread upon the waves in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, your gospel is so amazing. And we glory in the good news. We thank you for the good news. We thank you afresh this morning for the good news. And we give you praise, Lord, for not leaving us in our sinfulness, sinking to the bottom of your, the ocean, sinking in the abyss of your justice, Lord. We thank you for your totally undeserved kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We didn't deserve it. It wasn't expected. And we just thank you afresh, Lord, for loving us and sending Christ to rescue us. We thank you, Lord, that our hope is not in ourselves and that it is in you. And Lord, even if the world considers us to be nuts, let them think what they will, Lord. We love you. We trust in your power and in what you have done. And Lord, I just pray that this, this, this truth, this message, And this lesson of the walking on the water, you would burn it into our hearts, Lord. Stamp it upon our eyes. Help us not to forget. And Lord, we often do get afraid when we think about our sinfulness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear your comforting voice and your presence when we're we're thinking about how unrighteous we are and how holy you are. You would always remind us, Lord, of the, the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood that was shed, and of how you see us in Christ, which is blameless. So Lord, help us, to, help us to see these things afresh and help us, Lord, each day to stand boldly in the righteousness of God. And Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and for all eternity, Lord, you deserve our worship. You are so wonderful. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.